If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to open up tonight to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 and briefly 1 Peter 3 verse 15. We're in a little series here. We titled it simply, Have You? It's the form of a question without have you what, and we're adding the what. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 reminds us that we are a living message that if we're going to call ourselves Christians and we, in vessels of clay, carry the message of Christianity wherever we go, that people should be able to see Christ in us by the way we act, the way we react, the way we respond, the way we treat people and so forth. It's all because of this. It says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the words of truth. God calls us not to be intellectuals, but to be students. A disciple is a student. To learn what God says. The words of God are the most important words on this earth. And there's nothing more important that you could know well than these words. You may not have done well in school and all these other things. I didn't either. But that wasn't nearly as important as this is. This has meaning to it. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you and do it in a respectful, reverent way, in fear of God. So that's the way we live. This is who we are. We are Christ's people. We are Christ-centered. Our life is all about him and it should be a living testimony that we all have. Now, the things that are involved in that life is what we're talking about. It begins with our first question, have you been born again? Because while that is so easy to assume that you've been born again, it's so easy to act like, at least some of the times, you've been born again. It's so easy to do what born-again people do, that for the people who can act that way and do those things, they assume they're born again. And there's a lot of people who go through their whole life assuming that they've had a religious experience they never had. And they wonder why their life is so out of balance at times and they can't handle this and they don't do well there and they're up and they're down and exploding and then calm. It's because you, there's nothing in your life that controls you. Christ is not dwelling in your heart by faith. He's not in control. You can act like a lot of things are okay when really a lot of things aren't. But have you been born again? Have you been born again? Has your life started anew spiritually? And we've been through all of that. Second question last week was, have you been baptized in water? Such a meaningless thing to a lot of people today doesn't mean much, like a lot of religious, spiritual experiences don't seem to mean much to a lot of people, but it's a big deal with God. Mark 16 says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That baptism is a identification with Christ. You are lowered into the watery grave as one who has died from his sins and you're raised out of that watery grave as though your sins are washed away, a new creature in Christ, ready, as Romans 6 says, to walk in newness of life. 
If you've never been baptized in water, then there would be at some point in your life, there's got to be a question of how sincere are you about your Christianity? I mean, why would you neglect that or put that off? Because God made a big deal out of it. Everywhere in the New Testament, to repeat myself, everywhere in the New Testament that somebody gave their heart to the Lord, they were then baptized, whether it was in the jailer in Acts 16 or in chapter 8 with the eunuch that Philip went to. It seemed like everywhere they went, everywhere something happened. Acts chapter 10, the house of Cornelius, things happened they were baptized. They didn't wait till next week or Easter Sunday. They were baptized in water. And by water being baptized, I mean they were immersed. You go down into the water, not to be sprinkled, but to be immersed or put under. And then tonight, another have you is this, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit? That's an assumption that almost... All Christians make. Of course I have. They say I couldn't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And they've been taught that. That's what they believe. That's the way they assume that it is. And that's the way it is. It's a very controversial subject. I know when I first got saved in the Christian church, it wasn't long after we got saved that we heard about the Holy Spirit. This is back in the late 60s. And everything was a little different then as far as sensationalism than it is today. People in the church are kind of used to crazy things today, but back in those days, the Holy Spirit baptism, which would never meant anything to us until somebody mentioned it. You all been baptized in the Holy Spirit, like Acts 19. So we began to investigate it, begin to learn something about it. I didn't know anything about it. The preacher didn't know anything about it. My mom, I asked her about it, and she told me about how fanatical stuff like that was, and that was a exclusively a Pentecostal thing, and it was meaningless, didn't mean anything. You got the Holy Ghost when you got saved, so you don't need all this other stuff added to your life, and, and this stuff about tongues is just a bunch of gibberish that makes no sense if you believe that tongues, speaking in tongues are a part of this. So it was kind of like... It's just not a big deal, and it doesn't matter. The only people that do that are the people in the little storefront churches or the little mission stations and the little meek and humble-looking places where they just don't know any better, and they feel like they need that. And any kind of debate that comes up, I found in my life later on as I began to learn and, and study these things, any kind of debate that came up, was almost fruitless. And I have learned through the years, if somebody is antagonistic, I don't talk about it. I just change the subject or go home or do something else because I'm not going to gain any ground by arguing with anybody, especially if somebody is totally set against it. I just change the subject. But I'll say this from reading the New Testament and looking at church history. The early church began with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That was the way it started. Now, they heard a lot of things that they had the best teacher you could have prior to that, they had Jesus. I mean, they were with him for three years, three and a half years. They heard things that we would marvel at ourselves. And he said, I have more things to say yet, but it wouldn't do me any good to say it to you. Not right now because the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. You think about that, just what he said. 
that there are things that we cannot learn the way we should learn it or know the way we should know it until something else happens in our life other than just hearing what Jesus said. Because he says, I have more things to say, but it, it's in a different dimension, which makes you sound exclusive, and I know, and let you're way above it. But I'm just saying what he said. Turn to John 14. I know this, and when the church, down through the ages, began to organize itself in the days of Constantine, and they began to add the pomp and clothing and the rituals and all the liturgy and all of that, when they added that to the church, that essentially replaced their need for the Holy Spirit. Now, it did, because the church no longer needed to have anything that Jesus had promised because man learned how to do things himself. Down through history, when God would move on the earth and do something, Martin Luther, for example, in the Reformation time in the 1500s, not that long ago, actually, eyes one day were opened to scriptures he had read numerous times, but he didn't know what it meant. But one day, God opened his heart to see what it meant, because that's what God does about justification by faith. Well, masters and scholars and great men had read that before Luther, but Luther saw what it said. And the revelation that he had became a movement. But what man does with movements is add his name to it and adds his flavor to it, put a fence around it and call it Lutheranism or Calvinism or Wesleyanism and, or John the Baptistanism what our baptism is, but men just have a habit of getting so blessed by something that they want to keep it that way, and so they organize it. And consequently, when you find something your way, and there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of those ways are death because they don't lead to where Christ wants to lead us. Those are fighting words in, in Christianity today. You tell people, listen, we all can't be right. We're going different directions. We have different ideas, different philosophies. We're antagonistic. We fight. We fume. I don't believe in that stuff. I wouldn't have that. I don't think you have to be. We, something is really wrong. Of course, there are seducing spirits. That's, is that still in the Bible, isn't it? And doctrines, so many different doctrines. But the Bible said we'll part because some of those doctrines are demons misleading things that the devil puts in the church. And I know that when the early church was filled with the Spirit and the Spirit was outpoured and every time they had a, a conversion, it was, have you received the Holy Spirit or they did that next. That was next. That followed just like water baptism. They did it then. And they had power. It had to have that for the church to get itself off the ground the way that early church did. And down through the years, when we lost that experience of the baptism or the receiving or the filling, whichever word you want, the Bible uses them all, of the Holy Spirit, the church, it just goes cold. It just becomes a formal, sometimes rigid, often liturgical and the higher types, uh, just religious meeting. People's lives really don't change. Marriages don't stay together because they go to church. There's no power in all of that. They have a form in so many religious circles. They have a form of godliness. They do things that seem so pious. 
But they seem to deny the power. Yeah, it won't work. Probably won't work. I don't know about that. Well, you know, that's what they say. I'm not sure. And something is really dead. I mean, something has really become from living waters to a swamp. And I think it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit's left out. And even with people who say they have it, they, I don't know that they all do. But I know this, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a grand moment in the early church. But here's what Jesus said, first of all, about the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 of John 14. Verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And... I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. What does the word another say to you? Now think of it. Now Jesus is talking about something so vital and necessary that without it, the church will never get off the ground. He says, now, I'm going to pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Who are we talking about? Verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not. They don't believe in things they can't see. Neither knows him, but you know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now what's he talking about? This is very interesting study to me. He dwells with you, and he shall be in you. Who was dwelling with them? Now, who did they know was walking with them and talking with them? Was it not Jesus? He said, he dwells with you, and he shall be in, inside of you. Now, you wouldn't have a physical something inside of you. It would be a spirit. See, the devil entered into Judas. That's a spirit entered into a man. So if the devil could enter into Judas, then think it not strange that Christ could enter into you. Now just think about it. Let's go on. And he says, I will not leave you comfortless. Then what does he say? Who will come to you? Isn't that interesting? He will give you another comforter. He will send. I will come. I will come to you and will not leave you Comfortless. Now, look in verse 25. I'm going to emphasize this. I want you to think about these things. This is one message that all Christians ought to learn about. I think it's that vital. Verse 25. These things I have spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And shall bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, let me ask you a question. What kind of recall can you have and what kind of understanding can you have without this? Listen, he's already been with them for how long? Three years, three and a half years. And he goes on to say, now, when the Spirit comes, he's going to take the things that I have said. He's going to show it to you. Whatever I've said. Because these are words of life. This is the weapons of your warfare. This is the sword of the spirit. This is what the devil has to honor and bow down to. It's the word of God. So this is what he said. I took in chapter 15 and verse 26. 
and 27. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send. Now, he said the Father will send. Now, he says I will send. You know what? I think the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are the same Godhead. I think it's all together, to tell you the truth. But the, when the comfort has come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And you also shall bear witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16 and verse 12. Memorize these verses too. 16 and verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot know them. Does your Bible say that? Or can you not bear them? You cannot handle it. Now think of it. Now stay with me. No hurry. This, the nature of this subject is so important and so misunderstood and misaligned and misquoted. I'm going to take my time. We'll probably do a couple of weeks on this subject. But think of this. He said, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come and show you a lot of things, going to lead you and guide you. The Father will send and I will send the Spirit of truth, and he's coming. Now, I'm not through talking to you people. I'm not through bringing revelation to you. But you can't bear the things that you need to know. You can't bear them right now. But, how be it? Verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth is come, what will he do? Will he not guide you? Will he not reveal things to you? Will he not show you things to come? Will he not make his word so clear to you that it will cause you to be prepared for whatever's coming because you can see it? Is not this the answer for not being caught unawares? Or not being one of those that missed the mark? He said, the Spirit of God will show you things to come. My philosophy is I quit trying to figure out things that, that only God can show you when the time comes to show it to you. Speak only what you know. But he says when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself. But whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now we know that he will illumine us. He will guide us. He will teach us. He will lead us. He will show us. All these are things that we need to have a testimony of in our lives. This should be the testimony of all of us who have claimed we've had this Holy Spirit experience. This should be your testimony. This is what others should take note of, that there, there's something there that I don't have. That's something that's existing in your life. It's not in mine. I go to church just like you do, but there's something left out. What is it? Well, it's the work that the Spirit of God does in those in whom he dwells. Now, do I believe that all Christians everywhere that have the Holy Spirit? No, I don't. And I can prove that in just a minute, but allow me to take the time to get down there to it. So Jesus, before he leaves this earth, he gives instructions to his disciples I have to turn to a lot of scriptures. I want you to see this. I want you to turn to Luke 24 and then Acts 1. Luke 24 and Acts 1. Luke 24 and verse 49. This is what Jesus said. He said, but tarry ye. Who's he talking to? His disciples. 
well, maybe this was only for them. So let's, let's just say what he said. Tarry ye in the city until I send the promise of my father upon you, which he said you have heard of me from the beginning. Now, what would be the promise back in Luke 24? What would be the promise of the father? Now, it doesn't say, he just said, but I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until what? Now, your Bible says this. Whatever the promise is, is where the power is. Are you with me? Until ye be endued with power from where? So it's not from man. It's not normal. It's not natural. It comes from God. You can't make this happen. Only God can make this happen. And he said, with the promise comes P-O-W-E-R. Okay, we got it. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, Jesus said, as many as received him, as many people as received Christ, to those people, God gave the authority to be his children. Are you with me? That's John 1, 12. Authority or he gave the right. Whoever, whatever human being, sinful person, turns from his sins and repents and receives Christ. You don't accept him. He accepts you, but you receive him and receives him. God brings that person into his kingdom as his child. You belong to him. Whether anything else ever happens or not, you're his. You don't need anything more to happen to be his child. Amen. Okay, you are his by virtue of God's invitation. You did not choose me. I chose you. He drug you out of the miry clay, brought you out of darkness. God did. He who sent the Son is the one who draws you to him. That's John 6. So he brought you to him and gave you the privilege and the right of being his child. Now in Acts 1, in verse 4 and 5. Jesus' last words before he is taken up into heaven. He says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, like Luke 24, 49. But wait for what? The promise, which he said, I told you about. You heard from me. And verse 5, he said, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized, Acts 1, 5. You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. So whatever's going to happen on Pentecost, Jesus said it's like being baptized. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes, it'll be a baptism. It'll be a filling. You'll be filled because you were baptized. You'll be filled and baptized because you received the same thing. Different words, but the same subject. Now, verse 8, but you shall receive power when you are baptized in water and the preacher lays hands on you. No, it doesn't say that. Thank God. That'd be easy. But that would be natural too. But he said, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, which would include Shelbyville, Shelby County, and all of you out there in the streaming world. 
So here's how I understand this. Jesus did not say only to his disciples that this alone is for you only in the first century church and it does not exist after that because he says you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Well, we're told to be witnesses ourselves. Chapter 2, he'll tell us that. So, power works like this. By virtue of being born again, you become a child of God. Nothing else. You're not a child of God because you got baptized in water or the Holy Ghost. You become a child of God and then you do those things next. They're subsequent to your salvation. They should happen. But I'm a child of God. I have the authority to be a child of God. The Holy Ghost comes to make my authority effective. By his power, his leading, guiding, insight, revelation, I am made to know things in a way that will enable me to do things his way, do the will of God. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. Some people limit the Holy Spirit to some kind of a eyes rolling back on your head, shaking, vibrating experience. I'm going to say jabber and carry on, and I can't even tell you all the things that I've seen because you wouldn't think it was true, but I've seen a lot of different things happen in the last 40-plus years of my life, not as much in the last 20 as the first 20. But remember, this is John 1, 12. To those that are born again, he sends the Holy Spirit to make your new life in Christ what it should be. Otherwise, all about all you can do is get your manual and study and, and do decent right things and, and fit into some program that the church has because without the Holy Spirit, man is left to his ingenuity, his programs and his designs and, and his ideas, and that's what people follow. And this has been left out. It's not like there's any power. How many hospitals are named after a church? I mean, Baptist general, Lutheran general, Jewish, whatever. It seemed like there's so many hospitals that churches have built or have their name on them because they don't believe in the message of healing anymore. And I know the arguments. You don't have to raise your hand and say, I, wanna. I know the arguments. All I'm saying is that when the church lost its power of the Holy Spirit, it no longer has the spirit to lead them and guide them. They have to invent a school. We call them seminaries today to train whoever wants to be a preacher to be a preacher, to make them wise and clever and, and how to do this and psychology on how to handle you all and how to lead you in a wise and human way. And yet when the Holy Spirit comes, the early church was led by the Spirit. The end time church, while there be an element that will be led by the Spirit, is mainly it's just a dead structure. It really is. And I hear people talking about the rapture and all the Christians are going to go. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there's a bunch that will, but I don't think all of them will. You saying you're a Christian doesn't make you one. You're going to the big church with the big crowd doesn't make you a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are one supernaturally. Something completely outside of yourself has happened to you and changed the way you look and see and think and walk. And that's amplified by the fact that when, when you receive the Holy Spirit, everything changes. On the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 first. 
These have been some of the most often quoted scriptures in furious discussions through the ages. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. It'd be hard to find that today. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, not from the organ, not from the youth group, not from the preacher's prayer closet, but there came a sound from heaven. It's something above and beyond man. As of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and I'll be. And maybe that wasn't in the early manuscripts. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you notice the Bible said cloven tongues of fire. Remember, now you don't have to turn to this. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, John the Baptist, when he was baptized, and he said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he said, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Fire usually refers to purging and cleansing, or it could be judgment. But it usually has to do with Mostly cleansing. It can have to do with intensity too. He said, I would that you were hot or cold. It doesn't use fire, but it does refer to hot. So he said here that on the day of Pentecost, they were all together. They didn't really know what to do. Nothing was going on. There was nobody there to prompt them about how to make this work. They were just sitting there and suddenly there came a sound. Nobody knew what it was. It had never happened before. It was an entirely New Testament experience. Miracles galore in the Old Testament. Miracles galore. But there had never been anything like this. Suddenly there was a sound in the room. And it was sort of unsettling sound. And then there appeared unto them these cloven tongues. Like as a fire. And it set on each one of them. Headed over each one of them. And they began to speak in other tongues. Actually, in this case, another language as the Spirit of God inspired them and gave them utterance. But as you begin to look at the rest of the chapter, you'll find that the language they spoke was a language, the tongues they spoke in was a language that other people could understand. And then as we read and study on this subject more, we realize the Bible talks about tongues as divers kinds. Divers means different kinds. There's the tongues of men, which men understand. Remember that? Then there are the tongues of angels, which no man understands. Paul said, well, he that speaketh in a tongue speaketh not unto himself. He speaketh unto God. No man understands him. So there is a language that the Holy Spirit can give you. If you were, and some think this is exclusively a missionary gift, that when you were some jungle somewhere and you had this gift of tongues, as they call it, that you could speak the language of wherever you were. But that hasn't always proven to be true. Because you can't make it something. I remember one time I was going to pray for a lady in, back in our church years ago. I was in charge of the baptism in the Holy Spirit room. There's a room in this little chapel we had. It's full of people, and I was giving instructions. And so I told those helping me, all right, let's start praying for people, and you all receive. And this one lady was, was obviously a Spanish lady. And I had the idea. I thought, 
I think I'll try some Spanish here. I couldn't speak Spanish anymore than I could speak Latvian. So I got down there and jabbered in her what I thought might be that, and she didn't have a clue what I was saying because she kept her eyes closed and didn't go, ah. So I realized that I can't make this happen. You can't use the Holy Spirit to promote yourself. You can't use the Holy Spirit to promote your church. The Holy Spirit uses you to do his work and his bidding. And if you're led by the Spirit, you don't try to manipulate or act like something. You're just like the day of Pentecost. You're there and you're ready and you're willing and let the Holy Spirit use you and lead you and guide you. If you don't know the answer, don't try to give one. If you don't know what to do, don't try to do something. It's the Spirit's work. It's God's work. But you can't do this unless you first receive the Holy Spirit. You got to do this first. So he said in verse 33, they saw this happening and on the day of Pentecost. They were all convicted in their heart. And they said, men and brethren, what are we going to do? So verse 33, they, he described, they said, what does all this mean that we're seeing and uh, hearing? Peter said this, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the what? The promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, did Jesus say that this the Holy Spirit's coming was a promise? That God was going to do it? That he would ask the Father and the Father would do it? And he said, I'll send him. John said, okay, it's all coming back now. He said, first of all, what you see going on here, he, he explained earlier in the chapter, was what Joel prophesied that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters are going to see visions and dream dreams and this is what's going to happen. He said, it'll be so different that like Isaiah said, he said, with stammering lips and another tongue, I will speak to this people. And so this was happening and they didn't know what was going on and Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he begins to say that. He said, this is what's happening. Jesus has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Shed forth means baptized. Shed forth means filled. Shed forth means received. It's what, the, what Jesus did in starting the church in a supernatural way, in a way that man could not do it and still can't. It was the beginning of the church. And it happened like this on the day of Pentecost. This is what happened. Now, while the Bible that most everybody has in any denomination, any church, any group, it says the same thing. It sent, a lot of new translations that I'm not sure what they're saying. But most everybody's Bible, if it's close to what the King James says, it says this. You can't deny it. You can't get away from it. You can't debate it. You can't even say it's passed away. Because he said in verse 39, for the promise is unto you, those that were there present, and to your children, and to those in Shelbyville. Shelbyville, Kentucky, Charlestown, Indiana. Well, I don't know where y'all were, but that's where I was. He said, the promise was unto you, your children, and to all them that are far off, even whom? Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Because he didn't call everybody. Otherwise, he said everybody. But he says, as many as. As many as. In other words, let's say this. When God calls you to him, he has this for you. Now, again, 
I'm not trying to be mean and ugly. I'm not trying to pick a fight. Boy, I've been in a bunch of them over this. Trust me. I have been with a lot of different all-nighters, two pots of coffee, red-faced discussions with Church of Christ, Baptists, Methodists, especially in, in the beginning. Good-natured, and we didn't become enemies over this subject. I probably am saying that unless God opens our eyes, we can't see what he has for us. But that's true, isn't it? I'm going to put your finger right there and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17 and 18. And he said to the church, this was the Ephesian church. It was not assumed that they had this. Paul said, I'm praying that this will be your experience, that God will give to you, verse 18, a spirit or the spirit of wisdom that's to know how to do things and revelation of what? Where does it come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. You can't know things like you should know them. You cannot live on the level you're required to live without the Holy Spirit. And if you say you have the Holy Spirit, but you're not walking that way, I don't think you have it. You may say you have him, but I doubt that he has you. Because not only is the new birth a transforming ex experience, but the Holy Spirit comes to amplify this whole thing. Magnify it. Make it not only life-changing experience, but a, a lifelong experience. You think of the same spirit that created the world. The same spirit that walked out of a tomb. The spirit of Christ. You know what the Bible speaks of the spirit of Christ? Romans 8, he says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're not even His. Whew. There's got to be a way that we know we have it, and there's got to be a, a determination when you have it to not let anything interfere with it. It's settled in your mind. I'm an overcomer. I'm not going to give in, give up. I'm going to walk. I'm not going to quench the Spirit. I'm not going to grieve the Spirit. Because that would be devastating for my life. Because this is the thing that makes it all work. It's the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, without it, you can't do what you need to do. Where would you get wisdom and revelation without the Spirit? Where would you get it? In school? In a seminary? I don't think so. You can get a lot of knowledge. But what good is knowledge if it can't translate into a life that glorifies God? Jesus said, I've got a lot more things to say to you. Let me ask you all something. Is all the revelation the church has ever needed given, or is there more yet to come? You can't even know it without the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus said. You can't be guided into end-time truth unless the Holy Spirit is there leading you and guiding you. You can hear about it. You can study about it. You can take notes about it, but you cannot be influenced to live that way without him because you probably can't see it. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will be like God's spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. As he said in Ephesians 1, again, he said, you know, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, illumined, and you shall begin to know what belongs to you. 
He talks about the power. He goes on there, the majesty, the greatness, and the glory of the, And you are over principalities and powers. And this book says in chapter 6, Ephesians, how that we have the weapons of our warfare mighty. And he begins to describe the greatness of the Christian life and the power that is to the church. But all in the context of verse 18, the spirit of wisdom and revelation has to show you this. Otherwise, all you can do is try to do what somebody else does, act like somebody else acts, read somebody's book, and hope it works. But that's not the way any of this works. Go back to the book of Acts. Let me show you the places I mentioned a couple of these. Let me just go back to the book of Acts in chapter 2 and verse 4 and point out some words. First of all, when the Holy Spirit came, your Bible says they were filled. Does it say that? They were filled. Now, you can try to define filled. That's okay. You should work at that. In verse 38, he said this is a gift. 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, for this is a promise that God made. So this filling comes in the form of a gift. What if I told you in Hebrews 6 it was a heavenly gift? That we are to taste of. Amen. And then he says in chapter 8, if you look over there, Philip going down to the church in Samaria, verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Now let's see if they were born again, because some of the commentators say they weren't born again. But let's see if they were. And the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip said. Would that be a part of it? You're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. James 1.18, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. God uses his word, doesn't he? Even in rebels, he uses his word. Even a false prophet can for the gaining of somebody preach right words. God can use those right words and save people. It doesn't the prophet that saves them. It's the word that saves them. That's why a lot of men were gone astray, still had an effect upon congregations. God watches over his word, not a ministry. He watches over his word to perform it. If he sent his word to save and somebody hears his word and believes it, then God with that word saves them. That's the way it works. And we wonder, how can this be? How can a man be a drunk? Or how can a man run off with somebody else's wife? And I've heard some many, many of those. I knew one of them. And this man was so effective that he could start preaching, and boy, you'd be coming forward. But it wasn't him. It was God honoring his word. He always has, and he always will. But that's how they're born again. This is how this thing works. So anyway, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, Philip went down, he preached the word. They saw miracles, which he did. Unclean spirits came out of people. Many that were possessed with devils and were taken with palsies and were lame, were healed. In verse 8, there was what? Great joy in that city. Now, this is what I believe. I believe that when somebody receives the word and their lives are changed around, they will be joyful. Verse 12, but when they believed, that would work now. We're doing better now. But when they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, that's what Jesus said, go preach. 
in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, I'm thinking they're born again. You got to agree with me. Because he preached the word. They believed the word. They were joyful, and they were baptized. Now, what more do you do to be saved? But go on. Now, verse 14, when the apostles that were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. But I thought they were saved. I thought they were saved. Didn't they receive the word? Were they not baptized? Was there not much joy? Was there not signs and wonders following the word? Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard about it, they said, well, right away, right away. Peter and John, their best, go up there, Samaria. They said, when they haven't went up there, they prayed for them that they might. That they might. That they might receive the Holy Spirit for as yet. He was fallen on none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. How was it you suppose Simon did not know that he didn't have that? I would imagine I wasn't there. I don't want to add to the scriptures. I just want to think with my mind. Sorcerers control people. They hold them. They bewitch people, hold them under a spell. Witchcraft. A parent can do that to a child. You can hold them under a spell. You don't love me. They can manipulate and they can rule people and control people. It's witchcraft. And I'm sure this sorcerer who was had this kind of a devil in him, probably tried to do what the apostles did. They laid hands on the guy and said, in the name of Jesus. So he probably got one of his people and laid hands on him and nothing happened. <laughs> he laid hands on this one here and nothing happened. He said, well, I don't have what they got. Otherwise, otherwise, why would he want to buy it? Now, he knew by some means that he didn't have it. He didn't watch them do that, and he said, well, I want to buy what you got. I'm sure he tried it. I can't prove that. But he realized that he did not have that. But what I want you to see is in verse 14, he says that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, it says he was as of yet fallen on none of them. It seemed like every, all these cases in which the Holy Spirit is spoken of, it's something supernatural from above, from God that comes down. And it's called receiving the Holy Spirit or being baptized in the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's all referring, all referring to the same thing. Look in chapter 10, the house of Cornelius. Paul went over there and spoke to these Gentiles. In verse 44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell. Now here we are again from above, fell on all of them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift 
of the Holy Ghost. Now, does the word poured out, received, filled, and baptized, or fell from referring to the same thing? Just different ways the Bible describes the same experience. But while Peter was talking, the Holy Ghost came upon them, not in cloven tongues, because he doesn't have to do everything the same way every time. But the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the Bible says they began, verse 46, to speak with other tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. It seemed like he could do it right away because you can't receive the Holy Spirit unless you're saved. It wouldn't happen to somebody. You don't get filled with the Holy Spirit and then get born again. It's the other way around. You get born again. Now, it happened here all at once. It doesn't happen the same way with everybody, but it happened here while they were speaking. Or else, in verses 1 and 2, here was a Gentile who was a godly and a pious man. Verse 2, a devout and pious man gave much alms to God's people, was a faithful man. Maybe he already was. I don't know. But this was the kind of man that God chose to pour his spirit out upon Gentiles. It was in this kind of a clean house. And when he poured it out, those who came with Peter said, they got the same thing we got. How did he know they did? Because they heard him do the same thing that they did. They spoke in tongues. Nobody said, no, I don't believe in all that stuff. Nobody said that. That came later on in church history when people thought there was no dignity. It was very undignified for the Holy Spirit to manifest his coming like that. It just, besides, we don't do that in the Method Baptist Presbyterian, I can't say Presbycostal church because Pentecostals used to do this. But this is the way it was in the New Testament. It was not a big deal. I mean, the tongues part wasn't. Today has become a big deal with people who just don't want that to be. What if in the big church you said, now Sunday we're going to wash feet? We're going to, we're going to wash what? Did you say cars or feet? Yeah, they did that in John 13. Remember that? What would people think? Well, see, that's the problem. It's this social presentation of religion acceptable to man being admired by unregenerates that people seem to strive for in a community. That's why community activity is so important to a lot of people. I'm not against it. I'm just saying, but that's their reason for getting out and doing things in the community is to get praise from, from people. It's not necessarily doing it as unto the Lord because they like the praise they get from doing it. And things like that happen a lot. No one laid hands on them in Acts chapter 10. Nobody touched them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Look in chapter 19. This was originally going to be my text, but it took me this long to get to it. Acts 19, verse 1 through 6. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, I think he looked around till he found some, don't you? He said unto them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? Why is it that's all they want to talk about? <laughs> Back years ago, 
in our little church, do you know what the great accusation was in our community about the Christian church and this thing about speaking in tongues? They would say to people like me and others in our church, there were others, it was pretty aggressive guys I was born again with, they'd say, is that all y'all can talk about? They would have said today to the New Testament church of that day, if Peter and John had been on this earth today, they had come in here and said, now before I speak, have y'all received the Holy Spirit? Because it won't do me any good to say some things that God has shown me if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Oh, we've been born again, praise the Lord, and you got your name in heaven. Now, have you received the Holy Spirit yet? Well, you got it all at once, didn't you? Well, they, they didn't in Acts chapter 8. The Samaritans didn't. They had to receive the Holy Spirit and took Peter and John down and prayed for them that they might receive. And they laid hands on them and they received. They had already been born again. No, sir, I think the devil is robbing in this hour and has been for several years. It's just robbing a lot of people. It's all these man-made ideas about what is and what isn't. But it says, he found them in verse 2 and he said, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They said, we haven't even heard so much. You said, there is a Holy Ghost. He said, well, then what were you baptized un unto then? He said, well, we were baptized unto John's baptism. He said, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, announcing the coming of the Lord, and those that believe were in preparation for his coming were baptized in uh, water. In verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't know why after Matthew 28, it never, ever, ever once says Father, Son, Holy Ghost. It mentions water baptism many times, but never the Father and the Son, the Holy It's always Jesus, Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Anyway, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Verse 6. And then after that, right after the water baptism, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. I'd say the tongues was unknown, and the prophecy was known. They glorified, as they did in Acts 10, they glorified God. They knew they did because they understood that part. And you see, I can speak in a language that is given to me by the Lord I don't understand, and I can speak in a language I do understand. That's 1 Corinthians 14. I can do both. When I'm around those that don't pray in the Spirit, I don't either. Not in front of them. Because they wouldn't understand that, it would probably bother them. But you could set your food on the table and gather around, you could pray in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit means praying in tongues. If I speak in a tongue, my... Spirit prayeth. And he said, you pray well. If somebody doesn't know what you're talking about, they weren't blessed. So think about that before you do that. I mean, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We don't go around and walk in the post office and go, you know, that wouldn't get anybody saved. They'd probably ask you to leave. But 19 verses 1 through 6, I believe, is the New Testament pattern. It's been largely set aside, forgotten, almost never, ever taught anywhere. But it's the New Testament pattern. Anybody that's got a decent Bible has that. And the question they asked in verse 2 was, since you believed. You see that? Have you received the Holy Spirit? 
Now, I'm going to end right there, and, and next time I'm going to pick it up right here in Acts 19 and talk about four vital facts that go with receiving the Holy Spirit and then a couple of other things. And then another session we'll do a little bit more. Amen. Amen.